0: I also want to thank you for your uh, prayers. I know that some of you have prayed for me and for the other teachers, and I really appreciate that. I'm always standing in the need of prayers, and I appreciate that, and, and keep praying. Um, thank you very much for that. I love the music this morning, and those praises were indeed sweet. I, I love it because it turns our hearts towards God, and it helps us to focus on, on Him. I love that. I have a couple of praises myself. I was saving... Them when uh, for when I get up here, the first one um, is this weather. I just thank God for this beautiful weather. It is so uh, lovely. I uh, am a person that hates to see summer end, but October kind of makes it worth it because I think October is probably the best month in Fort Worth, at least weather-wise. It's so beautiful. And I also want to um, thank God for my husband, um, my husband Scott. God has blessed my life with Scott, his steadfastness. Um, We've been married for um, over 32 years, and he still makes me laugh. And that that is a good thing, Martha, and he's still a lot of fun. And I say this because a few weeks ago, uh, Scott was in Seattle for business, and I was able to join him uh, for a few days. And we hadn't been away, just the two of us. We, We didn't realize how long it had been since we had just been away by ourselves. And so it was quite fun, and we went to Victoria, and we went to Vancouver, Canada. And the interesting thing about that, um, from Victoria to Vancouver, um, it's an island, so you go on a ferry, or when we were in Victoria, in the harbor, we saw these float planes. Now, these are the little planes that are kind of on those pontoons, and they land on the water and taxi up to the dock, and you get off, and... And on, and it was a 35 minute ride, and my husband said, Wonder, you know, what that would cost, wonder what that would be like. And so I thought he wanted to do it. And so I was saying, Yeah, that let's, let's do that. That would be fun. You know, I was a little nervous at this little plane landing on these little pontoons. (laughs) Excuse me. And what I didn't know was that. He really thought I wanted to do it. So anyway, we took this float plane with both of us kind of gripping uh, you know, the arms of our chair as we took off. But it was the neatest experience because when you get up high, you look down and they don't fly that high. You look down at the water and you can see everything that's going on. And when we got over Vancouver, I especially loved this because I'm a map person and I had this bird's eye view of Vancouver and it was wonderful seeing how everything was laid out and it was beautiful and I was reminded as I was looking down how different my perspective was up above looking down at this city and I was uh, recalling this because I had had a friend a couple weeks before she had been to Vancouver and so she was telling me how much she didn't like Vancouver. How she had flown into the airport and then had gotten into a car and had gone it's south of the downtown area and so she had gone through downtown she and her husband trying to get to Whistler Canada and as she went towards downtown she got in a big traffic jam. They were in that traffic for three hours trying to get through town. When they got to the downtown, it was just these big high-rises with glass, and she said it was ugly. I didn't like it at all. And then she kind of looked at my face and said, you know, maybe you'll like it better. <laughs> she realized what all she'd been saying. So I was a little bit, you know, wondering what it was going to be like. Well, my perspective, I came in over Vancouver. I saw the airport. I could understand what it would have been like to be in in that traffic but I came in with the mountains to the north and I landed in this beautiful harbor with the big thousand acre Stanley Park to the west of downtown and here were these high-rises that didn't look all that ugly to me and I thought my perspective was different because I came in this different way and I thought that's a little bit like Jesus how he is with these disciples um, actually it's really not anything like Jesus because he's great and omniscient and all-powerful and knows everything He knew the hearts of these disciples. And so sometimes we look at these disciples and we think, that's an interesting choice. That would have been, you know, what would have made you pick that person? And there's no more interesting choices than these two disciples we're going to look at today. Matthew, the notorious tax collector, the chief of sinners, and James, son of Alphaeus. The most obscure disciple. We know almost nothing, literally nothing, about this disciple except that he was one of the twelve. In fact, I have this little chart I meant to bring in. It's this little pamphlet you fold it out. It's got all the different disciples and it has just these little one-word bullet points about them. And under personality and character, there's three or four words for each disciple. Except when you come to James, son of Alphaeus, and there's one word for his personality and character. Unknown unknown. We know nothing about this um, disciple. And that's who we're going to look at today. The one thing I did want to say, I lumped them together, in case you were wondering, because it's James, son of Alphaeus, and we know that Matthew's name was Levi, son of Alphaeus, and so it's possible that the two were brothers. It never says that in Scripture. It's silent in Scripture, so we don't know that for sure, but it's a possibility. Um, And I didn't know where else to put James, son of Alphaeus, so he's with Matthew. We're going to look at him um, a little bit later for a couple minutes. But right now I want to look at Matthew. And so turn in your Bibles to Matthew 9, verse 9, we just have a few more weeks left in the series, two more after today, and then we'll break for Christmas, and uh, we will come back January the 10th, so we're, we're getting close to the end. The book of Matthew is my favorite gospel, and so I was quite surprised when I began to study Matthew and found out there was so little about him. There's really just this one story that we see here Jesus coming to Matthew but it's told in three gospels Matthew Mark and Luke and each one has a few extra details so it's enough for us to put a face on Matthew and I think when we leave today we're going to know him better than we did when we began Matthew is the one on the right I don't know it's going to have you close your eyes and picture Matthew oh I'm sorry your left yes the one on the left and then James, son of Alphaeus, bless his heart, we just can't put a face on him. <laughs> we just can't. So he's obscure, and there he is. I love that. I did, This is my first look at this, and I think that's pretty good. So that's poor James, son of Alphaeus. We are going to talk a little bit about him uh, after a bit. So let's start with Matthew and let's look at Matthew 9 verse 9 and it says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. So the first thing we see is that Matthew was a tax collector and some of your uh, translations might say publican. The word publican and tax collector are the same thing, they mean the same thing. He is a tax collector. That was his occupation. Now, how many of you knew that Matthew was a tax collector before you even started this study today? Raise your hand if you knew that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure almost every one of us knew that. That's how we know Matthew, this notorious tax collector. He was known by his occupation that he had before he met the Lord. And we do that today. We still kind of identify people by uh, their occupations. So what do we know about tax collectors? Today, we still have taxes, and when I think of taxes, I think of the IRS, the Internal Revenue uh, Service. And um, I don't know that we hate it, but I think, uh, picture this, you go to your mailbox, you take out your mail, and in there is a letter from the IRS, and it says, you are going to be audited for the tax year 2005, and we will be at your home on uh, November the 19th. Ah does that make you feel? I think we would get a little bit maybe nervous, maybe kind of frustrated or irritated. Um, This very thing happened to my parents when I was in high school. They received a a notice that the IRS was coming. Now they were honest and always paid their taxes, but let me tell you, it was a little stressful time. I can remember them pulling out all the papers at the dining room table. Um, I can remember coming home from school with the IRS agent there at the table making notes. Um, My mom kind of in the corner wringing her hands. Um, I don't have much impression of him except that he was not really a very friendly or smiley guy, and he didn't ever speak to us. And it could be that my uh, brothers and sister and I would kind of walk by and give him these glaring looks because all we thought was he was an intruder in our home. Um, This is nothing compared to the way tax collectors were treated in the time of Jesus. They were held with much greater contempt. In your homework, you looked at some scriptures about that and you saw that tax collectors were lumped with the sinners and the uh, prostitutes and sort of the criminal elements of society. They were not just disliked. They were hated and scorned and despised and held in contempt. They were known as thieves and traitors by the Jewish people. They were banned from the synagogue. They were forbidden to offer sacrifices or worship in the temple. In fact, they couldn't even go past the outer court of the temple, called the Court of the Gentiles. They had to stay back out there. And it appears that there were two kinds of tax collectors in Jesus' day. One was called the Gabbi, and they were the ones that collected income tax or property tax. And these were set assessments, so there wasn't as much dishonesty that went on among them. The second group of tax collectors were called the Mokis, And they collected import and export taxes. Anything that was bought or sold could be taxed. They taxed things. Unger's Bible Dictionary says that they taxed um, when you traveled on certain roads. They taxed you you when you traveled over bridges. Certain harbors were taxed. Even admission into the marketplace they could tax. They could tax your um, axles and wheels. Um, They could tax the carts that you brought things with, pack animals. They even taxed pedestrians. They would go through your parcels, and they would tax your letters and your packages. These tax collectors, the Mokis, could inflict much greater hardship upon the Jewish people. And just picture that. Picture yourself coming home from the grocery store or from the mall, and you've got your packages, and you have to go past the tax collector, and they're rifling through that and then charging you. More tax for those things you bought. It looks like there were um, different categories. There were the great Mochis. These, the, these were the chief tax collectors. And this is what Zacchaeus was. He was a chief tax collector. They would buy a franchise from Rome. They would have a certain area that they would collect taxes from. And they had a certain amount they had to give to Rome. And then everything else they collected, they got to keep. So they could grow very rich. And they would hire... Um, lesser tax collectors. They were called the little Mokis that would actually collect the taxes. They were the ones that came face to face with the public. And so they were held in um, greater contempt. They were more hated and more resented. Matthew, it appears, was one of these little Mokis because he is sitting at a tax collector's booth. And knowing all this, we can see why they were hated. They worked for the enemy. They they were employed by, by Rome. The Jews were living under the tyranny and oppression of Rome. They were hated because they were thieves. So they were considered traitors and they were considered thieves because they exacted much more tax than was required. So the tax collector grew very wealthy off of his fellow countrymen. This is Matthew. This is Matthew. At some point in Matthew's life, he was attracted to material things, to gold and silver. And he was so attracted that he was willing to grow rich off cheating his fellow Jews. But his wealth came at a high price. It came at a high price because he was a social outcast. All self-respecting Jews would not even look at a tax collector. And he was religiously cut off. Even his money would not be accepted as a temple offering. I think over time that Matthew became disillusioned with this life, which must have seemed more like death than life to Matthew. I think he might have begun to read the Old Testament scriptures and to study them. We know that he was very familiar with the Old Testament because his book of Matthew contains many, many quotes and references from the Old Testament. We know that he couldn't go and, uh, to the temple or to the synagogue, and so he must have studied the word of God, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures on his own. I think he began to read the prophecies about the Messiah coming, and maybe he began to long for a way back to God. Let's go on and read um, verse 9 again. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, at first blush, this doesn't look like a lot of information. But if we go back and look at it carefully, we can uh, put a lot of details to this picture. First thing it says, as Jesus went on from there, went on from where? Where was Jesus? So when you see that, you go back and look what preceded that. So let's look back at chapter 9, verse 1, and we see it saying, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Now some of you might think that his own town was Nazareth, because we said that's where he grows up. But on your verse sheet, Matthew 4, 13 tells us, Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Matthew had made his headquarters in Not Matthew, excuse me, Jesus had made his headquarters in Capernaum. He had left his town of Nazareth after they rejected him and had set up his headquarters in Capernaum. And this fact is uh, borne out when we look in the other two references in Mark, and you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but this story is told in Mark um, chapter, I think I have it here, chapter 2. Verse 1, and it says a few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum. So Jesus, in fact, was in the town of Capernaum. It goes on to say that the people heard that he had come home, and so many gathered there that there was no room left. So he was in Capernaum, and many people had come to hear him. And this same story is told in uh, Luke. It's in chapter 5, and it gives us a little more details about this. It says that the Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and from Jerusalem were sitting there listening to Jesus. So here's Jesus in Capernaum. And on your map, if some of you may have looked that up, Capernaum is up north right by the Sea of Galilee. And if you look and see Jerusalem down at the bottom, they have come a long ways up to Capernaum. And you might notice Nazareth there. It's a little bit down south. Capernaum was a um, big city on the Sea of Galilee. And let's go on and read and see what happens in this story. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law, these Pharisees that were there, some from Jerusalem, They said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming, but Jesus, because only God could forgive sins. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Now we know just to say, it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, because there's no way to prove that. But to say, get up and walk, we could see if that is going to happen. So Jesus asks him this question, and he goes on to say, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up, and he went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God. They couldn't deny that Jesus had healed this paralytic, and therefore it would make sense that he was able to forgive his sins. And so this is what has just happened when we go on to read as Jesus went on from there. And in Mark it says that he went along the Sea of Galilee teaching those that followed. So they leave this scene and Jesus and his disciples walk along and they're teaching as they go. And picture this. They're on this major road. And this was a major thoroughfare that goes from Egypt through Israel, through the town of Capernaum, and up into the north, into Syria, and into the town of Damascus. So it was a major thoroughfare with lots of traffic, lots of people on it. And this is where Matthew sits in his tax collector's booth, a great place to collect lots of taxes. And so it was dusty, and many people traveling back and forth. And we can be pretty sure that Matthew has heard about Jesus. Jesus set up his headquarters there in Capernaum, all the people walking back and forth. Matthew would have heard these stories of Jesus, this man from Nazareth that healed the sick, that cured the demon-possessed. Maybe he had heard that Peter and his Friends had left their successful fishing business and were now following Jesus. And maybe he had just heard this story. Maybe people in their excitement as they passed by were talking about this story where Jesus had this paralytic on a mat, and he said to him, I forgive your sins. Get up and walk. And the paralytic did that. He was healed, and he got up and walked. You know what I think that jumped out at Matthew from this story? The fact that Jesus can forgive sin. I think that must have made him think. And maybe he was thinking, surely this man is from God. The promised Messiah. Could this be him? The promised Messiah, the Savior that was to come. And would this man forgive my sin? And then he looks up. And there's Jesus. And he looks at Matthew. And I think he walks over and he must have looked deep into his eyes. And he says these words, and we wonder how he said it. I think in the most kind and loving voice. And he says, follow me. And we know because Scripture tells us that Matthew got up and followed him. You know, inherent in that call to follow me is first, believe. And I think Matthew did believe. He believed that Jesus was the Son of Man who could forgive sins. And that when he believed, his sin was forgiven. The weight of his sin, the burden and the guilt of his sin was lifted off of him. What freedom. I think he gladly gave up his wealth to follow Jesus. And Matthew was probably the most wealthy of all the disciples. Herbert Lockyer says in his book on the apostles, instead of greedily counting his silver and gold, unjustly secured, he was now to experience the spiritual wealth the master offered. To experience this new birth, this forgiveness, he was willing to forsake his wealth and his occupation for an unknown and perilous future. It was more than worth it to know the love and fellowship of Christ. Now Mark and Luke tell us that Matthew's name was Levi, son of Alphaeus, and that probably is his given Hebrew name. Maybe he was from the tribe of Levi. But Matthew Goes by the name Matthew, and this was probably a name that was given to him by Jesus, and it means gift of God. Isn't that neat? Matthew had experienced the gift of forgiveness, and his life was never going to be the same. When we believe in Jesus, our sins are forgiven. Do you remember when you first experienced the forgiveness of sin? What filled your heart? Was it peace? Was it love for Jesus? Was it a feeling of security or maybe joy or elation? You know, it could be that some of you in this room are struggling with the forgiveness of Christ. Maybe you feel that your sin is so great that Jesus couldn't forgive that. You know, the Bible tells us that no matter what you've done, when you believe in Jesus as your Savior, your sin is forgiven He is our Redeemer. His shed blood on the cross did that for us. It covers our sin. And this point is so important that I have several um, scriptures on your uh, sheet here, and I wanted to read through them. Acts 10.43 says, All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Acts 13.38, Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Colossians 1.13 and 14 says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Now, Matthew, these scriptures came after Matthew, but Matthew would have been familiar with Psalm 32, the great confession psalm of King David. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. If you're someone that struggles with that, read chapters 9 and 10 of Hebrews because it talks in great detail about it. I just have Hebrews 10, 10 listed. It says, and by that will, that's God's will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all, his sacrifice was sufficient to cover your sin and my sin. If you believe God's word, then accept his forgiveness. You know, not accepting could come from a place of pride. I had a friend this week that tells me it's that attitude that it's all about me instead of it being all about God. And that's true because when it's all about God, then that's humility. Recognizing who God is, the one who makes redemption possible, the one who gives us life eternal and abundant. We are entirely dependent on God. Andrew Murray says that Christ's humility is our salvation. And his salvation is our humility. Matthew knew this immediately. And from forgiveness of sin comes humility on Matthew's part. Matthew was forgiven and Matthew was humble. He was humble. I think we see that displayed in this story and in uh, in other places where uh, he lists his name. In Matthew, he puts his name after Thomas, but Mark and Luke list it before And he also adds tax collector at the end of his name. And I think he does this out of humility. I think he does it because he never wants to forget that his sin was forgiven. He never wants to forget what Jesus did for him. And it reminds me of the story of the sinful woman that anointed Jesus' feet early on in his ministry. And we read in Luke 7, Jesus says this about her. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much but he who has been forgiven little loves little. He is humble. Another place that we can see that is in his gospel. Except for Jesus calling him in this place, there's not. Jesus, Matthew doesn't write another thing about himself. You know, today, um, when you pick up a book, the author usually has biographical information, and nine times out of ten, there's also a picture of him. But this is not the case with Matthew. When we open up his book, it begins right away with the genealogy of Jesus. His gospel is all about Jesus. Jesus is his hero, his teacher, his master, his Messiah. You know, humility is very difficult. You can't really try to be humble because when you try to be humble, then you're thinking about yourself, and so you're not humble. So it's, uh, it's, it's tricky. And I think the best that we can do for our quest in humility is to focus more and more on Jesus. And instead of looking for those humble things in our life, we look for the pride, those prideful things in our life. Now, Lynn Kitchens talked about this a couple weeks ago, so I don't want to belabor this point, but I do have um, some warning signs of pride that you might be aware of. Um, The first one is anger. They're the ABCs of pride. The first one is anger. You know, do you get angry? Are you driving down the road and, and the traffic is making you angry? Or standing in the grocery lines angry? Or your kids are ma- You know, that usually stems from pride because you're either embarrassed or you're inconvenienced or you're feeling like someone's not doing you right. Kind of like Karen talking earlier, you know, we want this or I deserve that. You know, it's that me, me, me kind of attitude. And when it doesn't happen, we get angry. The second one is boasting. The B is for boasting, and that's pretty self-explanatory. Listen to your words. I need to listen to my words. When I'm telling this, is it boasting? That is um, a warning sign of pride. And then there's comparison. Comparison is never good for many reasons. And when you compare yourself, whether you end up on the good side of the comparison or the bad side, it's still pride because you're thinking of yourself more than you ought Matthew kept his focus on Jesus, and we read that in uh, Matthew 11. And I want you to listen to these words carefully. As we're thinking about Matthew, they might have even more meaning for you than they have in the past. Matthew 28, I mean, Matthew 11, 28 through 30 says, and this is Jesus speaking, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Matthew focused on Jesus, and his humility, we see, is going to lead to gratitude. He was grateful. Humble people have grateful hearts. And we're going to read that in this next section. Let's go on and read verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Now, Matthew, in his humility, leaves out quite a few details that Luke includes in his story. Luke tells us that Matthew held a great banquet for Jesus, that Jesus was the honored guest at this banquet, and that there was a large crowd, and Matthew calls them tax collectors and sinners. That's because those were the friends, the only friends that Matthew had. A self-respecting Jew was not a friend of Matthew. So he had to get those that were considered unclean, the sinners, and the other tax collectors to come to his house. It looked like it was a grand banquet. So we see his generosity in inviting his friends. But we also see that he has a desire to share his new friend and savior, Jesus with his old friends, these tax collectors, who also need new life. He was showing them that he had forsaken his old life and that he was embracing the one who had given him this new life, who had changed his life forever. It makes you wonder how many of these guests of Matthew came to repentance and came to believe in Jesus that night. You know this kind of evangelism still works today. Many of you have probably done this. You invite people to your house for dinner and you begin a relationship with them and then you tell them how Jesus has changed your life. I know Sally Klingman who who works for Shelley, she's one of uh, on the women's ministry staff. She and her roommate Judy Clark for years, have had a Christmas brunch, and they invite their neighbors. And sometimes they have a speaker, and they they tell their neighbors that we're gonna I'm gonna have somebody talk about the meaning of Christmas, and they um, expose their friends to Jesus in this way. This still works, and we know that um, not only the tax collectors were witnesses of this, but also the Pharisees, who must have been standing outside the door, because we read in verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now the truth is, and these were probably, by the way, the same Pharisees and religious leaders that had been at this Um, house uh, of Jesus earlier in the day that had seen the uh, paralytic healed, that had heard what they considered blasphemy from Jesus. Now they're seeing that he is eating with the unclean, the the sinners. And Jesus says this to them. Now they would not have seen themselves as sinners. The truth is we're all sinners. Romans 3.23 tells us that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the Pharisees didn't see themselves as sinners, and so they didn't recognize their need for Jesus. Jesus goes on to say to them in verse 13, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, they would have been familiar with this because this is a quote from the Old Testament from Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6. And the Pharisees were all about sacrifice. They knew how to offer the right sacrifice at the right time in the right way at the right place. They were all about sacrifice, but it was all external. They had no compassion or mercy for their fellow man, for these tax collectors and sinners. They had gotten so far away from the heart of God that they really no longer understood the love of God. And I think this point, as an aside, is where the where the Pharisees Hardened their heart against Jesus. I think they might have come in the beginning curious to see who this man was. And hearing him blaspheme was one thing. But being called sinners by Jesus was another. And this hardened their hearts. And from this point on, I think they turned their backs on Jesus, wondering, what are we going to do with this man? And the last thing that we know about Matthew is he is the tax collector turned author. His new occupation, a disciple of Jesus, and he is the author. He wrote the book of Matthew. When Jesus looked at this tax collector, he saw a disciple who could tell his story. Matthew, the tax collector, was used to taking notes and writing things in organized ways. I think that he probably was taking notes at the Sermon on the Mount. And that's why we have so much of that sermon recorded in the book of Matthew. Matthew's Gospel is written first and foremost to um, a Jewish audience. He writes his Gospel to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the King of the Jews. There are more references in Matthew than in Mark and Luke and John put together. Um, Some places I read as many as 99 up to 130. Probably over 100 references to the Old Testament can be found in the book of Matthew. And they're quotes from all over the um, Old Testament. I looked and found quotes from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Daniel, Hosea, Jeremiah, Micah, Zechariah, and Malachi. Matthew quotes from all these books from the Old Testament. If you have a Jewish friend, let them read the book of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is the link that connects the Old Testament to the New Testament. It bridges the gap. The Old Testament ends waiting for the promised Messiah, the king that would come from the line of David. And Matthew opens up his book with the genealogy of Jesus showing that he is the king from the line of David. The word kingdom appears more than um, 40 times in Matthew. And it's only in the book of Matthew that we see the magi, the wise men, coming to worship the king. Matthew doesn't write his book in chronological order, so don't let that confuse you when you read through it. He um, puts together lessons from Jesus and miracles of Jesus, and he puts them together uh, topically for emphasis. And although Matthew writes for his fellow Jew to see Jesus as the Messiah, it is Matthew that ends his book with the great commission of Jesus. And I have that on your verse sheet. It's Matthew 28:19 through 20. It says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew knew that Jesus was the king over all nations, not just the Jew. And what do we learn about Jesus? That he chooses a tax collector for a disciple. You know, Jesus saw things from a different perspective, a little bit like looking down from that airplane on Vancouver. He looks at the heart. When he looked at Matthew, he didn't see a tax collector. He saw what he could be. Jesus saw things differently. He saw Matthew as God intended him to be, as one forgiven, who would follow Jesus in humble gratitude with allegiance only to him. You know, this wasn't a great um, PR move on Jesus's part, he must have known that um, from worldly standards, this did not look like a smart thing, that this would not endear him to the religious leaders and the leadership of the time, that this would rather be a stumbling block for them, that it might weaken Jesus' chance of being recognized as the Messiah. But F.F. F. Bruce tells us that Jesus had no fear of the drawbacks arising out of external connections or past history of true believers. and that is true for us today. God isn't put off by our connections, our external collections, or our past history or our sin. He sees our heart, and if it is turned towards him, then He can work in great ways in our life as we follow Him. I read a story about Sir Philip Bridges. He was the organist um, many years ago at St. Paul's Cathedral in London and he was a great accomplished organist and uh, one day he was out um, in the countryside of England on a walking tour and he came to a small church and he asked the caretaker if he could go in and play the organ. And the caretaker didn't know him, but he thought, I guess that would be okay. And so um, Philip Bridges goes in, and he begins to play this accomplished organist on this small organ in this church. It was beautiful music. And when he finished and walked out, the caretaker said, sir, I never knew our organ could produce music like that. You know, when Matthew left his tax collector booth, he didn't know that when Jesus played the organ of his heart, that he would write this great biography about our master, Jesus Christ. Let's take a couple minutes here and look at James, the son of Alphaeus. And that's really all we're going to need is just a couple minutes, so um, stay with me. All we really know about him is his name. And even that is confusing because there's other James in the New Testament. Now, I know all about having a name that is common and confused with many people. I grew up um, Debbie, and there were lots of Debbies, especially my age. And uh, I have a story that's pretty funny. I have a little brother, Ned, and he is nine years younger than I am. And his first day of kindergarten, we were sitting around the dining room table that night, and I said, well, Ned, what do you think about kindergarten? How is, how is school? And he looked around the table, and he says, well... I'm the only Ned in my class, but there are five Debbies. Now, my mother and my brother, everybody laughed, and I thought, hey, Mom, it's your fault, you know, I'm, I'm Debbie. But uh, that was probably pretty, I was the bossy big sister, so it was probably pretty scary for Ned to have five Debbies. That's the way it is with James. Even his name, you know, isn't very distinguishing because there's other James. So what we know is that he is not the James that is the brother of John, um, the son of thunder, the son of Zebedee. Shelley's already talked about him. He was the first disciple that was martyred. We also know, <clears throat> excuse me, that he is not the James that is the half brother of Jesus. Now, um, Jesus's brothers rejected him while he was walking on earth. But after the resurrection, they came to be believers. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, became a great leader in uh, the early church. So when you look in Acts and you see the name James, it's either James the Apostle or it's James' half-brother of Jesus. But alas, it is not our James, son of Alphaeus, we do think, though, that he is the one that's referred to in Mark fifteen 40. Don't turn to that. I will um, read that to you. And this is at the cross, at the crucifixion. And it says in verse 40, Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and Salome. Now, this Mary, the mother of James the Younger, this is thought to be James um, the Apostle, James the son of Alphaeus. And Mark gives him here that. So we learn that his mother is Mary and that she also was a follower of Christ and his brother Joseph. <clears throat> and we see that Mark gives him this nickname or calls him the younger, or some of your translations might have said less, James the less. This really is a Greek word, um, micros. And it literally means little. So some commentators think that it refers to his stature, that he was a little man, that he was short. Some think that it was um, with regard to his age, that he was younger, Um, most definitely probably younger than James, the son of John, and probably maybe the youngest of all the disciples. And then other commentaries say, well, it wasn't either of those. It had to do with his prominence. He wasn't very prominent, not as prominent as the others. I think the truth is that all three of those could be true. He probably was the youngest disciple and uh, might have been the shortest. And because of those two things, he stayed in the background, and he didn't say much. Today, we would have called him Little Jim, Little Jim the disciple. John MacArthur says in his book, 12 Ordinary Men, he has this um, thought about James, Apparently, he sought no recognition. He displayed no great leadership. He asked no critical questions. He demonstrated no unusual insight. Only his name remains, while his life and his labors are immersed in obscurity. We know that James was a disciple, but he was obscure. We know that he walked along with the twelve, that Jesus picked him, that he was in the upper room eating the Last Supper with Jesus— We know that he was in that upper room in Jerusalem because he's listed with those disciples that were awaiting for the Holy Spirit to come. We know that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and that he went out boldly and powerfully preaching the story of Jesus. But he represents the vast majority of believers who serve Christ faithfully in obscurity. Faithfully teaching that two-year-old Sunday school class every year without recognition. Taking food to the needy when no one knows about it. Maybe ministering to your neighbor, nobody knows about it. Lynn called it, um, well, Lynn said those are holy acts. Those, we call them small acts of service, but they're all holy acts unto the Lord. Maybe those um, believers that are worshiping God quietly and in secret because they can know that their reward is in heaven that it's not on earth and it's not from men. I think that's what James, son of Alphaeus, knew as he went along quietly without recognition that his reward was to be in heaven. Maybe he remembered when Jesus said these words. We read them in Matthew 6, 3 through 4. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. I love it that Jesus picked James, son of Alphaeus, the obscure disciple. Because from that we can know that in our anonymity, our quiet, humble service will be rewarded someday in heaven. And I love it that he chose Matthew, the notorious text collector, the great sinner, so that we can know that our sin does not disqualify us from being used by God. It is not, we're just a vessel. And the vessel is not the issue. Jesus is the issue. And Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 4, 6 and 7. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure, this light of Christ in our hearts. We have this treasure. In jars of clay, we are just fragile jars of clay. All of us. Maybe some jars are a little bigger than others, but we're all just fragile jars of clay. And Jesus made us like this to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. The vessel is not important. It's Christ shining through us that's the important thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these two disciples, for Matthew and for James, the obscure disciple. Father, thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for Jesus that our sins are forgiven because he was willing to die a perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Father, thank you for these women that have come to study your word, and I pray, Lord, that the truth of your scripture would go deep in their heart and change their lives and draw them closer to you. Thank you, Father, for loving us with such overwhelming love. Thank you for giving us your word that we might know you better. We love you, Lord, and I pray this all in the sweet name of Jesus. Amen.
1: Thanks, Deb. Okay, our annual Christmas brunch is December 1st. It's coming up and this is a great opportunity for you to bring a friend to join you for worship, to hear a great testimony, great food. And if you've ever been, you probably remember the beautifully decorated tables. If you are interested in decorating a table or purchasing a ticket, those tickets go on sale today in the welcome center out there at the information booth and you can get those. We also have two weeks of Bible study left and we always celebrate with food and fellowship and fun. And so our last Bible study, we will have a Thanksgiving lunch. We provide the turkey, and all you need to do is bring a side dish, so you could be thinking about what you would like to bring for Thanksgiving. That's in two weeks. I'll remind you next week also. And lastly, we, are, we still meet for prayer up front. Our prayer team is ready and to pray with you, so if you have a prayer need, you can just come right up front today, and they'll pray with you. Have a great lunch. We will see you next week.